0: Good morning, everyone. What a joy to worship together. I was, um, as we were worshiping, I felt there was something prophetic in the song we sang, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will will wait upon the Lord. Um, Let's have a word of prayer before we get started. Father, thank you for this year... Thank you that we're here, that we know Jesus Christ. Thank you that you're in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you that you're leading us onward to a most holy faith. Lord, we just admit we are far from perfect. We are needy. We still sin. And yet, Lord, you are so gracious to forgive us, to cleanse us, to fill us with your Holy Spirit anew. And we just want to expectantly look forward to all that you have for us this year. Pray that you'd be in this message, Lord, and your Holy Spirit would uh, apply it far beyond what uh, we could ask or think. We just uh, give you this, the remainder of this service in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to speak on the subject this morning of how to pray in faith. And um, we'll talk a lot about faith, but my, my, my real desire is to be thinking about prayer. We often hear the phrase that we are to pray in faith. And um, Jesus highlighted faith often, didn't he? He He kept challenging his disciples to greater and greater faith. And in the New Testament, that expectation to have faith is is reinforced. For example, in Hebrews 11.6, it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. But, what is faith? You know, is faith a force that is released through spoken words or is it a deep agreement with the character of God or is it something else even again? And prayer, now there is a mystery or what seems one. On the one hand, we're expected to have faith enough to bend the hand of God, if you will, in our circumstances through prayer and through faith in prayer. And yet on the other hand, we're to believe in a sovereign God who's in control of everything and um, his will is unchangeable. Uh, The theological term is immutable. And um, so we sometimes feel that there is this tension Uh, between miracle-working faith and the sovereignty of God. And I'd like you to imagine with me, if you would, uh, two ropes hanging down from the ceiling at the front corners of the stage. Um, Over here on the, uh, what would it be, the north side, we have the the rope called miracle-working faith. And over on this corner, we have the rope called the sovereignty of God. And I'd like you to imagine that there's a tire tied to the end of each rope. So actually, what we have are two tire swings. Now, our perspective is that these things are somewhat in conflict with each other. We can't quite sort them out in our human minds, and yet we know from God's perspective Uh, If you went up above the ceiling and could look with his eyes, you'd see that it's actually one rope with two ends hanging down. We don't quite understand all the mystery involved, but we trust God that these things are tied together in his perfect will. I wonder where would you place yourself on that continuum? I tend to be a little bit more over here. I kind of like the sovereignty of God, and I like to glory in the fact that he's in control and, and um, that he's a big God. He's, he's a huge God. But every once in a while, I, want, I find that I want to run over here and swing on this rope. You know, I want to grab hold of all there is to be grabbed hold of in believing in God and having faith and seeing what can be done um, through prayer. I think these two ropes form the outer boundaries of what I would call biblical faith, praying in faith. We know that heresy is most often any truth that is taken to an extreme. And so let's say we have an especially jubilant swinger on the, on the rope swing of faith, and uh, he just is flying back and forth, and he's, he's way over here, the, 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 prop, or the, um, the risk is that he will lose hold of the rope and swing off into heresies of faith. For example, the belief that you can just pray once this deep, fervent prayer, and then because I'm a man of God, I can walk away from that prayer and know that God has answered it. Have you heard that one? Yeah, or another dangerous rock outside the boundaries is is this idea where we, instead of faith in God, we begin to put faith in faith. We begin to glory in how much faith we have, and that's what uh, we put our confidence in. Some faith teachers say that faith is a force and words are containers, and that because we are called little, little gods in one scripture, that like God, we can create reality by speaking. And that those words of faith have metaphysical power to create a new reality. Over here on the sovereign side, if we were to swing out too far, and such that we lost control of the rope, lost our grip, What might we end up in? We might end up in deism, the idea that that God created the world but then he kind of withdrew and is just seeing how we handle things. Or fatalism, atheistic fatalism, where there is no God and fate, what happens, happens and we as human beings have absolutely no control or ability to shape what happens. You could even go further into Stoicism, where pain and pleasure are all the same. It's no difference. Or even into apathy, where you think, well, why swing at all? Why pray at all if God is in control of everything? I was sharing this illustration with Laura, and she started to tell me about the way kids swing on tire swings and how you have the traditionalist who sticks her legs through and grabs the top of the tire and then just wiggles her legs or tries to somehow get the tire going. Then you have the aggressive, you know, usually a boy, who uh, runs over to the swing and um, uh, sits, you know, pulls on the rope, pulls himself up till he's sitting on the top of the, of the, of the, of the tire, and holding on and, and doing what he can do. Then you have the lackadaisical swinger who just lies maybe on his stomach or her stomach in the, in the tire and just kind of twirls around. <laughs> maybe just one foot, you know, pushing. And then you have the super aggressive swinger who gets up and stands on the top of the tire and holds onto the rope and goes after whatever he or she can go after. Well, I was thinking about this and I thought about the Clutter Boys. (laughs) I thought about Daniel. What would Daniel do on the faith rope? I can tell you exactly what he'd do. He'd climb up to the top and ding the ceiling with his hands. (laughs) And then he'd push through a tile and he'd spider across on the top of the tiles between the the ceiling tiles and the roof and see how far he can get before he falls through. (laughs) He's a climber. And what would Josh do? Josh would be very creative. I think what he'd do is he'd, he'd ask Christian to push on this swing and try to get it to the center or as close to the center as he could. And then he'd get on the faith swing, put his toes in, and, and leap for this swing and try to hold the two together. After a trip to the emergency room, there would be Josh suspended horizontally, because he wouldn't give up. He'd be suspended horizontally holding those two tire swings together and thus completing the circuit and... Uh, That's not a bad image for maybe where we're to be, not rejecting either one, but somehow holding the two together. Praying in faith is definitely a place where we want to color within the lines and discover what true biblical faith is and how biblical faith expresses itself. Let me begin by pointing out um, three road signs of faith, if you will. You might want to turn to these Galatians 5, chapter 6, excuse me, verse 6. Galatians 5, verse 6. This is a, a, a passage that Larry showed me last week when I told him that... Uh, I was speaking on praying in faith. Galatians 5, verse 6. It reads, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Now that word working is translated in different ways in our various English Bibles. But the one that Larry likes and the one that I like is the NIV? It says, "Expressing itself in love, that faith expresses itself in love." The word there is "energeo" in the Greek, which is the word from which we get our word "energy." It's um, it means the vigorous exertion of power. Our faith is to express itself. I think this is the message of the book of James, isn't it? That faith that is not expressed is dead. And so faith has a need, or, or we have a need, to express our faith. And um, so the question that I bring to the table, the first question is, how does our faith express itself in prayer? How does God want us to express our faith through prayer? The second uh, road sign of faith is in Titus 2.2. Let's turn there, if you would. In Titus 2.2, well, let's start in verse 1, but we're going to be looking at a word in, in the second verse. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, Dignified, sensible, sound in faith. That word sound to describe faith is hugiaino, which means sound in faith, healthy, whole. It even has the meaning of safe. So faith is to be healthy and whole and sound and uh, safe. We get our English word hygiene from this Greek word, which is interesting. So a second question is, is our faith sound? Is it safe? Is it healthy? Um, is our faith conducive to long-term health in spiritual things? And then a third word is from 2 Peter 1.5. Let's turn there. 2 Peter 1 verse 5 says this, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge, and then the list goes on. There's a list of seven godly qualities that our faith is supposed to supply That word supply is uh, epichoregeo, which means um, to lead a chorus. It's the word from which in English we get the word chorus. So our faith is meant here, the way to understand this passage is, let your faith lead a chorus of godly qualities, and then they're listed. Isn't Isn't that interesting? So the members of the chorus, if you will, are moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. I think that's really interesting. So a third question that I would bring to the table is what chorus will our faith lead us in as we express our faith? through prayer in 2011. I've I've tried to look between these two ropes and say, what does the Bible tell us? What are the themes that are emphasized about prayer? And I'd like to share uh, quickly seven of them with you. The first one is to pray persistently. Pray persistently. Luke 18. Let's turn there. This is a very familiar passage, but it bears looking at again. Luke 18, starting in verse 1. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart saying there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest she wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Faith is expressed through persistent prayer. Amen? Faith is expressed through persistent prayer. So we can throw away that teaching that says a real person of faith just prays once and walks away. We can just throw that out because persistence is a tremendously big theme in the scriptures. Jesus taught in Matthew 7:7: ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And then in verse 8, What does he say? He says, for everyone who keeps on asking receives. Everyone who keeps on seeking finds. And to everyone who keeps on knocking, it opens. The Greek words in this passage, we've told you before, are in the present tense, which means the action is continuing, unending, continuing action. So it's keep on, keep on asking, keep on asking, keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Persistence is the hallmark of the Christian in everything. Or it's one hallmark. In Luke 8.15, the believer, is, it's the uh, parable of the sower and the seeds. And the, the one with good soil is said to what? Bear fruit with what? Perseverance. The one who bears fruit is the one who bears fruit with perseverance. And indeed, it is the first way, I believe, the first biblical way that we can express our faith through prayer. A second way is as we pray, we ponder the character of God instead of our faith. How many of you like that? Yeah, we we ponder the character of God rather than try. When, When I pray for someone, I don't want to be thinking about or trying to measure the relative strength or weakness of my faith. I mean, what a subjective measurement. How do you measure that? Anyway, so what the scriptures tell us to do is to focus on the character of God. His holiness, his power, his great love. For example, when you're praying for that prodigal friend of yours or that prodigal child of yours or that prodigal parent or that prodigal friend, uh, what do you want to think about? What do you want to be thinking about? I want to be thinking about the great love of God for sinners. I want to be thinking about the fact that in Luke 15, like like a three-barreled shotgun, there's these three parables that are just focused on that theme, the parable of the lost coin the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost son. Let's take just a brief look at those. I'll start reading while you catch up. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them a parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. How many of you can unashamedly say, I'm a source of joy in heaven. (laughs) I am a source of joy in heaven. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The beauty of these parables, though, is that these parables are really about the heart of our Father. They're really not about what's lost. They're about the heart of the father who loves sinners, loves prodigals. I, uh, well, let's just read just a few verses, starting in verse 17 of the prodigal son. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven And in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. I can't read that without becoming emotional about the father's heart and how he was looking for his son. When would he come back? I received a Christmas card this holiday along these lines where an old friend sent me a picture of himself with his kids. And he said uh, several things, but he said... um, I hope this picture will serve as a reminder of God's redemptive grace and of his relentless pursuit of a prodigal son. So I have that picture now on my desk at home to remind me of God's heart for prodigal sons. Let's never stop praying for the lost. Amen? For that prodigal son or daughter, father or mother, brother or sister, aunt or uncle, in this way we understand and agree and trust in the character of God and express our faith through prayer. So number one, biblical theme is what? Persistent prayer. Second theme is pondering the character of God when we pray. Number three is one that Jim uh, Garrett has really sensitized us to and, and uh, hit very forcefully, even as recently as last week, that we pray to the Father through the Son. Amen? Amen. Uh, this is very basic, but it's very important, a truth that's uh, worth paying attention to. I won't say much about this except that Jesus instructed us to pray to the Father, he never said we're to pray to him or that we are to pray to the Holy Spirit. Um, there's no such prayer in all of the New Testament along these lines. But in Matthew 6.6, 6, Jesus said, When you pray, go into your inner room and pray to who? Pray to your Father who will hear you in secret. And he will reward you. And then just a few verses later, we have the Lord's Prayer. And the disciples ask, ask Jesus, teach us to pray. And he starts with these words, Our Father, who art in heaven, holy be thy name. I think we honor God and express our faith by praying as he taught us to pray. Now, if you slip up and pray, Lord Jesus, we're not going to tackle you and beat you up. I still still catch myself doing that. So this is not an edict from the Pope. It's just um, something that is good to have in our minds and to, to work on praying to the Father through the Son. Number four, I think it's important that we pray from a position of a deep personal relationship with God. You know, we hear teachings that if we shout, that if we curse things... Um, that if we speak to parts of our body, if we, oh, I don't know, that, um, that if we attempt to speak things into existence, they will happen. We, we end prayers within the name of Jesus, and I think that's a good thing. It's like we're saying through the name of Jesus but even that phrase, we need to be clear, has no intrinsic power. It has no metaphysical force that is released into cyberspace. That's not, that's not it. That's not what, what's happening. It's talking about I'm a child of God praying through the name of my Lord to my heavenly Father. That's the sense. And so we want to pray out of relationship. There is power in words, I think, but not that kind of power, not that intrinsic metaphysical power that creates things and calls things into being. So what does it take to have this deep personal relationship with God that has power? I think there's three aspects to it. The first is righteousness. Uh, turn with me to Psalm 15. We're just going to look at three scriptures along these lines. We know that sin separates us from God. And and righteousness is an important, important thing. Psalm 15 says, O Lord, who may abide in thy tent, who may dwell on thy holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. Righteousness and speaks truth in his heart he doesn't slander with his tongue he doesn't do evil to his neighbor nor take up a reproach against his friend in his eyes a reprobate is despised but who honors those who fear the lord he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change he does not put out his money at in interest nor does he take a bribe against the innocent he who does these things will never be shaken an emphasis on righteousness. And then secondly, well, let me add just two more verses. Proverbs 3.32 says that God is intimate with the upright. And then James 5.16, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Righteousness is one of the things that we need to pursue to have a deep relationship with Christ The second is the depth of our relationship, what we do in Christ. Um, You may be able to predict what story I'm going to turn to here, but I think of the seven sons of Sceva. Do you remember that story? That's in Acts 19, verses 11 through 17. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs and aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out. But some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. In other words, in the name of Jesus, but without the relationship. The seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. It's the relationship, not the words. A third part of having a deep relationship with Christ, I think, is emphasized in John 15, where it talks about abiding in Christ. Let me just read a few verses from there. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Spurgeon, that great uh, English preacher, Wrote a sermon called Abiding in Christ is the Secret of Power in Prayer. And he was so bold to make this statement. He said, The Lord gives the abider carte blanche. He puts into his hand a blank check and permits him to fill it out as he wills. That's pretty bold, but amazing. So these three things can help us. Express our faith. These can be part of the chorus members. Uh, excuse me, these, these four so far. The fifth one is rest in God. Work to rest in God as you pray. In other words, we all battle anxiety, right? At times, especially when we're in dire circumstances. And yet, we are called, I believe, to work to fight that anxiety. I want to say up front, I don't think anxiety is a sin. I think it's something that we just struggle with and need to fight constantly. There's a difference between resting in God in prayer and being asleep in prayer before God. <laughs> Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That feels pretty peaceful. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. Psalm 46, 10, be still. Stop your striving and know that I am God. We remember how Jesus was in the boat with his disciples and that storm came up and they woke him up and I think their words were this, teacher, teacher. Do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves and he said, Hush, be still. And then he said, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? Or as our friend Tom Lotz likes to say, Why am I freaking out? Jesus is always in the boat with us. Can you just say that from the depth of your heart? Jesus is always in the boat with me. He's always there. I don't need to freak out. The scriptures say that he will never leave us or forsake us. What a bedrock promise. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Number six. I think that it's not good enough to simply swing on the rope swing of sovereignty. I think that Jesus was clear that we need to make a demand upon ourselves to believe through our faith in God. Over and over, he says, believe and you will receive. That if we believe, nothing is impossible to us. So we don't want to shortchange this swing called faith in God. Turn with me to Mark 11 Uh, starting in about verse 20. This is a passage that has caused a lot of speculation and theologies and problems and error. And uh, let's just look at it together. This is um, on the day before Jesus had been hungry. He saw a fig tree. The fig tree was in leaf, there were no figs on the tree, and he cursed the tree and said, may may no one ever eat fruit from you again. They spend the night, they're coming back the same way, and they see the fig tree. It says, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore I say to you, All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. Now the faith stream, uh, folks, grab upon the the words about saying and speaking in this verse. And because they have the theology about faith that they do, because they swing way out on that swing, um, they fasten upon that, and it becomes fodder for the position they take about faith. Others argue about, what's called the objective genitive or subjective genitive. In other words, is it, is, is, are the words have faith in God or is it about have the faith of God? As if God has faith. And, um, you know, 99% of scholars say that this is an um, objective genitive, that what it's saying is just what we read. Have faith in God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't believe that God sometimes drops a gift of faith into an individual. We've seen that before. Where someone has a rhema word, they know what they know, they know God is going to do something, and uh, so we believe in in the gift of faith. But this passage, I think you've got to really massage it and manipulate it to get it to say that That's what it means. Jesus didn't go on to explain, well, there's this gift of faith that occasionally is dropped into our hearts. No, he's talking to all of his disciples, isn't he? And he's saying, have faith in God. And so I think this is a call to believe in God in every situation that we face. F.F. Bruce says it this way. He says, this is a challenge to believe in the limitless possibilities of faith in God. It doesn't seem to be saying that faith is a force, nor that sometimes a gift of faith is dropped into our hearts, though that we know this happens, but rather that we are to be on tiptoe in every situation for the limitless possibilities of faith in God. So what am I saying? I'm saying that when we are confronted with a situation, that I believe Jesus is calling us, there's a challenge, a call, to exercise our faith each time and and not just be content to rest in the sovereignty of God alone, that we must exercise our faith. And let me give you some examples. George Mueller is one we've raised before, how he said it, doesn't, it didn't take him any more faith to believe to feed 2,000 orphans as it did in the early days to feed two or three. Why is that? Well, either that was a gift of faith dropped into his heart, or what I believe is it was the exercise of his faith. It was him seeing God answer his prayers day after day after day after day after day He began to see ways that God could provide. He began to see patterns maybe even in the spirit. If I see a thousand marriage couples who are in trouble, I begin to see things, patterns. Um, I begin to instinctively sort of understand where they need to go to get through or out of their conflict or into greater health. I think Joel of a soccer player who receives a 60-yard pass on his foot in the air and can set it on the ground like a feather. How does he or she learn to do that? Through repetition, through practice. And so I believe we're to continually exercise our faith and not be afraid to do that. John Wimber, who founded the vineyard uh, uh, denomination, if you will, Um, he believed, you know, they were praying for healings for a couple of years, and people were leaving, and it was a a bad story. And then he began to what he calls see things in the spirit. He He began to see who God was working on, and so he would call that person up. Rather than trying to force the hand of God, He would um, see in the Spirit. Let's just pray for Johanna. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Bring healing, Jesus. i okay.